Podo. Welcome to the Ned Lard Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. Welcome. You've got mail. End shitification. Sometimes there's a word that comes along and it just captures the mood of the moment. I remember when the British TV show The Thick of It, which is a farcical depiction of life in the political fast lane, coined the word omni-shambles. It floated around Westminster for a couple of years until 2012 when the coalition government, a kind of Frankenstein monster of a cabinet constructed from the Conservatives, who are Conservative, clues in the name, and the Liberal Democrats, who are not, or not supposed to be. They delivered a budget that came to be known as the Omni-Shambles budget. For some reason, Omni-Shambles, it just worked. It felt like we were living through something omni-shambolic. Now, pretty much everything about life on Earth over the past several years could be described as an omni-shambles. But it could also be observed as the byproduct of enshittification. Enshittification is a word coined by the Canadian writer and technologist Cory Doctorow to describe, to filch Wikipedia's definition, the pattern of decreasing quality of online platforms that function as two-sided markets. Essentially, when a new technology platform emerges, it heads out with a dominant aim, to gather a user base. It struts its stuff like a, a plumed bird in mating season, seducing Joe Normal into adoption. This process often happens by ignoring a teeny-weeny thing called cost, Spend what you need, because what you really need is customers. And then things change, because once a platform has a user base, it starts to be of interest to its business customers, whether that's investors or advertisers, whatever. The perspective is no longer, oh look, a sexy, sexy bird. It's, where can I get my eggs? I want an omelette, and I only have butter, cheese, and mushrooms at present. Those birds have been getting it on for, for quite some time now. Surely there must be some delicious, rare bird eggs that I could enjoy. This is the tension between much of big tech. How do businesses extract value without destroying the identity that they built, and as a result, alienating their user base? Dr. O coined the term enshittification in 2022. And it feels to me as if it captured a moment of social media coming into full maturity. After more than a decade of mass uptake, whether that's a microblogging platform like Twitter, a network like Facebook, or even streaming services like Spotify and Netflix, which owe much to the social revolution if they're not strictly social media themselves, there's a cooling off of the desire to endlessly solicit new users. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? a viable revenue stream. And so things fall apart, or at least that's what Dr. O thinks. I've heard Ned mention intuitification organically. It's very much in the tech lexicon, the texicon. If no one's if no one's calling it texicon, I want that coinage these days. And so I asked them to comment on it. Here's what they had to say. This idea of intuitification is an argument being had between capitalism who can build stuff, I think that's a sick, that should be capitalists, and anti-capitalists who can't, until critics of the functioning of American business learn how to actually build and compete in the market, all they are capable of doing is observing and explicating a visible dynamic. It is the dynamic of hard industry as well as soft. 
Your car is in shitified, your house is in shitified, your cell phone plan is in shitified, your home insurance is in shitified. These are processes that have happened because the ideal of a product has been left exposed to capitalism for too long. Seeing it with big tech is predictable but inexorable, which is a pretty gloomy note. And I feel we may get a less cynical view of shitification from Cory Doctor himself. Now, I should say before I play the interview that we fell victim to a very specific form of inshittification, the inshittification of video conferencing software. This whole interview, which I actually recorded, I have to confess, back in September when Corey was promoting his new book, The Internet Con, was a nightmare. Also, I had theatre tickets that night and was running late, and you may be able to hear in my breathless final questions a fear that I was going to miss the curtain going up. Anyway, despite all that, and with you, loyal listener, in mind, I persevered. So here's Corey Doctorow, the godfather of enchitification. So Corey, I wanted to ask first off about this idea of enchitification, which is a word that you coined, and I suspect one of those words that sort of now follows you around professionally. But could you talk a little bit about what enchitification means, and then we'll we'll move on to how enchitification maybe influenced um, your new book? Yeah, so enchitification is a, a term I coined to describe a, a familiar pattern of platform decay. I am by no means unhappy that many people have found the term and the concept useful. The idea here is that platforms are the endemic form of the internet, uh, that the internet for all its claims to be a, a great system for disintermediation also turned out to be a great system for re-intermediation such that um, every relationship that we were promised we could conduct uh, as between individuals is now mediated by one of a small number of extremely large, rapacious tech companies. Uh, Tom Eastman says, I'm old enough to remember when the internet wasn't five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of where I, I get off here. And the idea of enshittification is that it follows a, a three-stage process in the start The platform takes some surplus it has, like investor capital or something else that it can freely use, and it allocates it to end users uh, to make those end users want to come and use the service. It finds some way to lock in those end users, and uh, then it starts to withdraw some of that surplus, make life worse for those end users in order to lure in business customers. So it takes some of what it was giving to the end users and gives it to business customers. And that's what a platform is, right? It's a way to sit between business customers and end users. Think of Uber with its drivers and its riders, or Amazon with its sellers and buyers, or Facebook with publishers and advertisers on one side and readers on the other. And um, it starts to allocate that surplus to those business customers, lures them in, finds a way to lock them in. And then it starts to withdraw surplus from the uh, business customers as well. And the goal here is to find an equilibrium where the only surplus remaining is that minimum residue needed to keep both business customers and end users locked to the platform. And all the rest of that surplus just goes to the uh, the, the shareholders. And of course, this is a very brittle equilibrium. So it's not very stable because the difference between a service that's so bad that you almost are willing to leave and a service that's so bad that you're just leaving is very fine. And so it takes just one big scandal or, or one extra straw to break the camel's back. And then people bolt for the exits. And when that happens, the platforms do something they call pivoting, which is tech bro speak for panicking. And they start to uh, come up with new ways of trying to express their business. So think of, of Facebook you know, declaring itself to be 
only secondarily a social media platform and primarily a way where we are uh, going to be imprisoned as low polygon, sexless, uh, legless, heavily surveilled cartoon characters in a virtual world they stole from a 25-year-old satirical cyberpunk novel. And so that is what we're what we're at now. We're in a kind of great enshittening when all the platforms, thanks to the collapse of the zero interest rate policies at the world's central banks, are trying to reel everyone in as quickly as possible, grab as much of that surplus as they can, make their shareholders as much money as they can before the whole thing collapses. And wherever we turn, the old good internet is uh, not only becoming the in-shitternet, but it's actually becoming a pile of shit. Okay, pause the tape for a second. This is me in the present day, not September last year, coming back in. You may not have been able to tell, not least because Corey is one of those people whose brain goes like the clappers and who consequently talks like someone is about to deprive him of speech. But I couldn't actually hear any of that. Our video conferencing software was being goofy as heck. And so we had to reset and use a different piece of software. Hence me interrupting this to now tee up my next question, which is over to you, past Nick. So you talk about platform decay and you write about platform decay, which is a, on a sort of philosophical level suggests that there was a world in which these platforms didn't decay, in which they didn't become compromised by the process of businessification or commodification of the internet. Do you think there is a world in which the internet didn't inshitify, or is it just naturally what happens when the pressure of capitalism is exerted on a tool as dynamic and omnivorous as the internet? I think the belief that this is inevitable kind of lets the the worst people on the internet off the hook by saying that, you know, these tech bros who who gave us the inshitified internet are, you know, prisoners of history rather than um, people who took conscious decisions. Uh, I think that there are degrees to which th there was a historic force coming to bear on the internet, but it's not technology per se. Instead, it's the decision during the Thatcher and Reagan years to draw down enforcement of antitrust and competition law uh, to allow companies to merge to monopoly and to engage in anti-competitive conduct like predatory pricing. So think of Uber uh, spending $31 billion over 12 years, mostly Saudi royal money, to put every private hire taxi and uh, most of the world's transit systems out of business, losing 41 cents on every dollar they earned in the hopes of getting to where they are now, where they've doubled the price of rides and have the compensation going to drivers. Um, and uh, the that was unlawful conduct until sort of slightly after the, the first election of Margaret Thatcher slash Ronald Reagan. And then a theory of antitrust called the consumer welfare theory that said that monopolies are actually a very efficient form of business and that it's only when a monopolist turns their hand to uh, conduct that is immediately, obviously, and uh, irrefutably harmful to us as consumers, as opposed to members of a polity or as workers or as residents, then that is the only time when uh, competition authority should step in. And so we had mergers to monopoly, not just in tech, but in every sector. It's not just the internet that's controlled by five companies. There's two companies that sell you all the spirits and two other companies that sell you all the beer. One company that does all the professional wrestling, three companies that do all the intermodal transportation, two companies that do all the trainers and, and so on. Wherever you look, it's just, it's just uh, between one and five companies running every sector. I mean, here where I live in, in Los Angeles, I've just uh, walked past um, my picket line at, at the Disney studio. Disney is one of four giant movie studios. There are five giant publishers. There's three giant record labels, two giant companies that do all the ad tech. 
and and one company that does all the ebooks and audiobooks. So if you're in the entertainment sector as a worker, you are bargaining with these oligopolies. And so that's true across the board. However, there's a second order effect to concentration beyond the ability to abuse workers or to raise prices or to uh, destroy the character of a place that tech has had an especial advantage with. So uh, uh, tech has got this irreducible component of universality to it. The only computer we know how to make is the universal Turing complete von Neumann machine. And it's a computer that can run every program. And so every program that runs on the computer that you're listening to this on, maybe it's your pocket destruction rectangle, maybe it's a, a laptop, all of those programs can also run on your smart thermostat and your smart toaster and the chips in your car and you know the chip and the singing greeting card your nan sent you this year so they're, they're, they're all equivalent in some profound sense of course some are more powerful than others and maybe running this program on the singing greeting card would take a million years but you could do it what that means is that historically whenever uh the tech sector was able to command some advantage by locking in some group of customers or users um, say that's ibm with its mainframes or deck with its mini computers or aol with its end users or or myspace with its social media users um, another tech company or indeed individuals or tinkerers or startups or or what have you were able to make programs that made it possible to leave one and go to the other uh, without having to endure any great losses and as a result Every time some would-be tech baron decided to turn the screws on us, um, they uh, were stopped. They were frustrated by the fact that someone else would come along and give us a screwdriver to unturn that screw, to loosen that screw. And as the tech sector grew more concentrated, it was able to collapse all the possible things that might ask lawmakers and policymakers for into a set of unified priorities that uh, did not um, include businesses that thought they could make more money by treating you better, but instead reflected a consensus among a cozy cartel of businesses that all agreed that they should be able to treat you worse. And so what we had was two kinds of tech regulation dysfunction. The first was that we didn't get the tech regulations that we needed, right? We didn't get comprehensive, widely enforced privacy law. We didn't get labor law adapted for tech platforms that allowed the fiction of the gig economy to persist. Um, we didn't get consumer protection laws that uh, extended to the internet so that if you search Amazon for the product that you need um, and Amazon instead shows you a product that an advertiser has paid them to substitute when it's not the product you're looking for in order to trick you into buying that product. That's, this is something Amazon makes $31 billion a year worldwide on. Those laws didn't keep up with the internet. And so here we have Amazon able to, to engage in this chicanery, to harvest surpluses both from business customers and end users. So we didn't get the internet laws we needed. And then we got a whole bunch of internet laws that we absolutely shouldn't have. Uh, laws that prohibit reverse engineering, scraping, using bots, and so on in ways that would make it easier to switch from one platform to another. And so you have these platforms that have very few competitors. So you have precious, precious few places to go that are able to abuse you with all the flexibility that digital provides in terms of surveillance and altering the business rules so they can exploit workers and customers and, and business customers. And then finally, we are not permitted to take any action that might help us to evade this uh, misconduct. Uh, the ad blocker that you install in your browser 
if you're like one in four internet users who have installed ad blockers, doesn't exist for an app, not because it's technically more challenging, but because the app is part of a closed ecosystem that has to be reverse engineered in order to block ads in it. And reverse engineering of that sort has been unlawful in the United Kingdom since 2002, when we adopted Article 6 of the European Copyright Directive. It's been unlawful in the United States since 1998, since the passage of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It was made illegal in Canada in 2012 with the um, passage of Bill C-11 and in Mexico in 2020 mm -hmm. as part of the new NAFTA agreement. Everywhere you go in the world, it is against the law to lift up your hand to defend yourself from companies that can flog you in any way they see fit. Okay, okay. so this is the kind of the, the central idea of, of your new book, The Internet Con, this idea of interoperability and how you can crack open the the you know the lid or you used to be able to you know soup up a car and now you and now you can't but but can we reintroduce it can we retrofit it into the internet is this a real thing that could actually be a solution or is this an idea for a sort of a subjunct a subjunctive history where we where we might have taken another route oh no you know one of the things that interoperability is really great for is um, undermining genuinely abusive conduct, right? Where you have a lot of people who, for example, want to leave Facebook, but don't want to leave behind the people they love on Facebook. Interoperability squares the circle. It lets you stand up a new network and create a gateway so that when you go to it, you can continue to participate in the communities and conversations that matter to you on Facebook. So you don't give up anything to, to migrate to Facebook. And indeed, this was a thing that Facebook relied on when it was establishing itself. Mm -hmm. uh, until 2006, Facebook was only available to uh, American college kids. You needed a .edu address for it. But when Facebook decided to expand to a much wider group of potential users, it had this problem, which was that uh, everyone who could use social media or wanted to was already on MySpace. Facebook didn't say to those MySpace users, hey, uh, we know that none of your friends are here, but our user interface is so much nicer. Why don't you just come and hang out here until your friends get the, get the word and, and join you? And in the meantime, you could admire our wonderful graphics. Facebook said to those MySpace users, here is a bot. If you give that bot your username and password for MySpace, it will go to MySpace several times a day, impersonate you, and grab all the messages that MySpace has waiting for you from the friends that you love on MySpace, and it'll put them in your inbox in Facebook. And you can reply to them there, and then it will push those replies back out to uh, those users who stayed behind on MySpace when you reply to them. And, and as a result, people were able to fluidly move from one place to another. And, and I often think about this when I think about my own family history. So my grandmother was a Soviet refugee, a, a child soldier uh, in the siege of Leningrad, who eventually ended up in Siberia in the Red Army, met my grandfather, got knocked up. And then after the war, uh, left Azerbaijan, where she'd gone after she deserted from the army and made her way to Frankfurt, got a DP boat and went to Canada, where, I, where my father was born. And she's the only one in her family who made that passage. Everyone else stayed behind in Leningrad, uh, even though it did present and continues to present huge problems. Uh, it was not a good life circumstance for any of them. My family who are still in Russia are not happy about it. And the reason that she was able to, to go is that she was willing to give up everything. She gave up all hope of contact with her family for an indefinite period. As it turned out, it was 15 years before she spoke to any relative of hers again. She gave up everything she owned. It was a one-way ticket. And most of the people who were uh, unhappy with where they were, 
were not unhappy enough to pay that price. Now today, you know, I'm on my third country. I'm on my third citizenship. I started in the in Canada, moved to the US briefly, then to the United Kingdom, became a British citizen, then moved to the United States and became an American citizen. Um, and I was able to make those moves back and forth very easily. Like, I'm not going to pretend it was cheap, but I could just pay some immigration lawyers to sort out my work visa. I could have some movers ship my things. I could go back and forth. And, you know, even after I left, I could hop back to Toronto for my mom's birthday, right? The fact that it was easy to leave and easy to come back meant that it wasn't so momentous to take the decision to go somewhere else. It was still a lot, but it wasn't everything. And when you see people going all over the place in the real world, when the barriers get lower, think of all the people who, when the UK was in, in the EU, who tried Spain for a couple of years or Germany for a couple of years or for the rest of their lives, right? Uh, and, and vice versa, people go right? People self-sort to the places where they think they'll get a better deal. And if the deal turns sour, they, they, go on, they move on again. The fact that we've erected these enormous barriers to moving from one service to another, you know, if you leave Audible, you have to throw away your audiobooks. If you leave um, the iPhone, you have to throw away your apps and the media that you've bought. If, if you leave Google, you have to throw away your email, right? As a result of these high prices that we pay to go from one place to another, um, these companies are able to abuse us knowing that so long as the pain of the abuse is less than the pain that we would endure by leaving, that um, they can get away with the abuse. And as a result, they seek constantly to increase the pain of leaving because it gives them more leeway to find ways to make our lives worse in order to make their own shareholders' lives better. Right. Well, you're obviously a very dynamic consumer, both in um, your country choice and, and your technology choice. I'm sort of someone who's like dragged um, down by inertia. I'm still using Bebo. But, uh, you know, in this world where we can have a bit more interoperability, a bit more kind of coming back and forward, I guess you're sort of relying then on innovation to break up big tech. This idea that, you know, if you can compete with big tech um, or you can, you know, get a foot in the door, you know, then that ha- that has a has the impact of sort of opening up big big tech a little bit. Is that the end game for you that we just introduce a little bit more competition into the into the system, or do we actually need to maybe rethink our our relationship and with this technology and the extent to which it has become a sort of a social force? Well, so innovation is is a word that tech sector apologists like to use as a way of justifying the abuses that tech gets up to and saying, well, it's the price we pay for innovation. I, I don't think we have to call it innovation. I think we can call it technological self-determination, right? The, the ability of individuals to decide how the technology that they use will work and on what terms they'll use it, to take the pre-feast menu that we have now, where in order to search the web, you have to be spied on. In order to have friends on the internet, you have to commodify your relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to listen to music, you have to shackle yourself to a single company for the rest of time. And, and to allow ourselves to alter the deal. And I, I think that this does foundationally rethink the way that we address ourselves to technology, right? That this is not more of the same. It's not fetishizing competition for its own sake. Like when the GDPR came in, a bunch of European advertising technology companies immediately went bust 
uh, on the one hand, because they were much dirtier than Facebook and Google because they were playing a much shorter game. And on the other, because they, they couldn't, uh, you know, maintain the fiction that they were headquartered in Ireland where the data protection commissioner rarely gets out of bed. And, and when they do bestir themselves, they rarely put on trousers and instead sit around in their pants all day eating breakfast cereal and watching cartoons. And so, you know, these companies were extinguished by the GDPR and people said, well, look at all the competition that we've lost in ad tech. Well, I don't want competition to see who can abuse our human rights most profoundly, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or efficiently. And the reason that companies are allowed to get away with so much, the reason they're able to capture their regulators so thoroughly is because they're so concentrated. So my goal is not competition for its own sake, but competition in order to make the tech sector weaker than the democratic institutions that we ask to keep it honest. Because, you know, intermediation isn't in and of itself a bad thing. You know, I'm primarily a novelist. I've written 20 some novels, mostly for Macmillan and Bloomsbury. And it's how I pay my bills for the for the most part. And when I was growing up in Toronto, there was a, a short fiction writer named Crad Kalodny, who was quite a character. He used to stand on street corners at night and during the day outside strip bars or in busy uh, shopping districts. And he would have a sign around his neck that said, very famous Canadian author, buy my books. Or, or sometimes he just wear a sign that said Margaret Atwood if he was feeling frisky. <laughs> and and Crad would um, would sell these books uh, and he'd also secretly record the conversations he had with belligerent drunks while selling his books and sell the cassettes as well. He was he was amazing. He's a podcaster before it was yeah, a podcaster. He was a podcaster before podcasting. Exactly. Now, I am uh, in awe of what he did, but I'm willing to stipulate that there are writers out there, probably including me who have something to say, but aren't willing to go to those lengths to say it, right? And so the fact that there are booksellers and publishers and distributors and publicists and all of those things, that's fine, right? That is not the the problem here. The thing that made tech better when tech was better was not that it was run by better people. It was that the people that ran it, the ordinary mediocrities, no better and no worse than the people who run tech today and whose ambitions were no less venal, those people were checked, right? They were checked by law and they were checked by competition. And if we want the people who step in to serve us as intermediaries, to keep our interests uppermost in their mind, they, there have to be consequences for betraying us. And those consequences will either be competitive or regulatory. And without competition, you don't get regulatory uh, consequences because competition is what keeps firms from capturing regulators. And so that's how we get a a better tech sector. And we need one, right? Because although the, the destiny of technology is not more important than the other fights we have, you know, whether that's, um, uh, the climate emergency or justice for working people or gender and, and racial reckonings. It is the platform on which we're going to fight those fights. You know, I, I cut my teeth riding a bicycle around the streets of Toronto, wheat pasting posters to telephone poles, trying to get people to come out to uh, uh, demonstrations. And if you're an activist and, and you think that if we got rid of the internet, you could still fight the causes you're fighting, you need to spend a couple of nights on a bicycle with a bucket of wheat paste. Because I tell you what, it's hard. It is hard graft and uh, it doesn't work so well. And so um, I believe that making a free, fair and open internet is not more important than all the other fights that we're going to have, but it may be more foundational. And because of interoperability, it's probably easier, right? Because we have this remedy 
that's not just break up the tech companies, which I'm fine with doing, but which is a slow process. You know, when, when they tried to break up IBM, uh, it outspent the U.S. Department of Justice on outside counsel to fight the U.S. DOJ every year for 12 years. So they spent more on lawyers than the U.S. government every year for 12 years mm-hmm. and then won because the, the Reagan administration dropped the case. Right? They called it antitrust Vietnam. Breaking up tech companies is hard. Once a company is too big to fail and too big to jail, it's also too big to fight in many cases. And you have to whittle it away for years and years. It took 69 years to break up AT&T. But um, while we're waiting for that to run its course, and, and we should be doing it, and you know, uh, God bless Lena Kahn and, and Marguerite Vestager and the Competition and Markets Unit for the work they're doing to break up tech companies and block mergers. Um, while we're waiting for that to happen, we can make those companies weaker and less equipped to fight us off, to fight off our democratic and accountable institutions by um, using uh, interoperability to evacuate the fire zones they've built that are always on fire, where users endure con- continuous harm and humiliation and exploitation so that they can no longer exploit those users and use the gains from that exploitation to fight the regulation that would comprehensively stop them from doing it ever again. You've been listening to the Ned Ludd Radio Hour, which is a Podo podcast written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. For sales and advertising, go to podopods.com and use the contact form there. The music is by Apes of the States, the internet song, and our artwork is by Tom Humberston. Please share the podcast on whatever and shittified social media you still use i'm not on twitter anymore so you know i'm relying on you to spread the word but if you don't do it i will survive i guess our neighborhoods aimlessly lighting shit and fire and smoking cigarettes and your dad probably tried pot he said he didn't then